This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalif. So I got to give a shout out to my to my buddy, Patrick, actually, who uh, forwarded me your, your IG page talking about the carnivore Uh-oh. diet, what you're doing with MeetRx. <laughs> That's a dangerous place, my, my, my Instagram page. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm, it's like once you're in, you're in, dude. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so he, he, he brought me to, uh, to your attention. Uh, and then to be honest with you, I've been doing this semi-diet. I, would, I, I haven't gone full carnivore yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more like a blend of carnivore with a little bit of veggies, sometimes carbs on the weekends, mm-hmm. um, but, but definitely changed my lifestyle in terms of diet. So big proponent of it. And I wanted to have someone on you like you on to, to chat about it and just kind of your journey, right? Like how this, this whole thing started, where this came about, were you always a meat eater, a meat proponent? You're like an evangelist for, for the meat community. So. <laughs> yeah, I kind of am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how was that start for you? Well, it was, it was not anything I ever intended, that's for sure. I had no, no intention ever of, uh, you know, writing books or, or, you know, founding a company or that was never on my agenda. You know, I'd, I'd always kind of from a young age knew I wanted to be a physician, was planning for medical school from high school. I mean, I started studying for the medical college acceptance test as a 16-year-old, which you don't take to your junior in college. And so, you know, I you know, went through, got my biology degree, did really well in, you know, testing and good grades and got into medical school. And then crazily enough, in the middle of medical school, I dropped out to go play professional rugby in New Zealand. I just kind of like, you know, I'm just, you know, it's kind of a weird kind of strange way. Went back in, went joined the military after I got done playing rugby, did that for five years, launched nuclear bombs as a, as a living. And then I got back into medical school and, and then kind of, you know, just did the normal thing. I was an orthopedic surgeon. I did, you know, went to Afghanistan, did a bunch of crazy war trauma for, for about six months and then went into eventually into civilian practice. And then as I got in, you know, I'm 54 now, but as I got into my, uh, you know, mid four, early to mid forties, I noticed that despite the fact that I'd been pursuing athletics quite heavily and I'd won world championships in a number of different sports, I've always been a really sort of high level athlete, very competitive, very driven. And, um, I saw my health was starting to decline and, you know, I couldn't train any harder than I was already doing. I mean, I was lifting weights, running sprints, doing cardio. I mean, training like a maniac and I was strong and I was winning world championships, but my health was declining. So at that point I started looking more and more seriously about diet and nutrition and, you know, started experimenting with different things, started looking at the diet sort of literature pretty intensely. And what I came to the conclusion of is that nutrition research and nutrition science is not a very good science. It's not a hard science. It's not mathematics. It's not physics. It's not engineering. In fact, people from those fields, when they look at the outcomes and the way we do nutrition science, kind of laugh. They say it's just kind of a pseudoscience. And so when you kind of look at that as your background framework, you start to question the sort of hypotheses or the, or the, you know, the sort of the conclusions. And as I did that, you know, I, you know, I, I ended up finding out that for me, particularly for, for me, first of all, lowering carbohydrates helped me out just as an athlete. I started having less aches and pains. You know, I went on a, it was called a ketogenic diet for a period of time. I noticed my appetite was pro- profoundly subdued. And this from a guy who would routinely eat eight to 10,000 calories a day. I mean, I was, you know, going to a restaurant and ordering three entrees was, was kind of, you know, normal for me, you know, and I, you know, I was almost 300 pounds, this big guy, big, strong guy. And, you know, I found this just dramatic shift in my appetite. As I started to do that with my patients, because we had, you know, as you can imagine, there's somebody who's replacing knees and replacing hips and replacing shoulders and taking care of, you know, you know, orthopedic issues. A lot of people had obesity as, as an underlying uh, risk factor for these problems. And so one of the problems was that um, those people tend to have higher complication rates, whether infection rates or, you know, just difficult surgeries, you know, respiratory problems, blood clots, you name it, they had, they had higher risk factors. So as we as an orthopedic surgeon community got smarter and said, hey, we were not going to operate on you if you're above a certain BMI. And the problem with that is you couldn't get anybody to lose weight. You know, you'd say, we're not going to do it. And then they would try and try and try. And finally, six months later, he said, okay, we're going to make an exception. You know, as they're crying in your room after, you know, just in there giving me this sob story about how their life is miserable and they want to kill themselves because their knees hurt so bad. So you end up doing the surgery. And most of the time they did fine. But, um, you know, then I started doing this sort of diet for me and I found this tremendous satiety. I started suggesting it to patients and lo and behold, they started actually losing weight. They were being successful. But more importantly, this is a thing that really sort of shocked me is their pain went away. And this was not just, you know, a minor aches and pain. These are people that we were literally going to replace their knees because they were in such severe pain. They went on a diet and even if they didn't lose very much weight, it might've been two weeks later. They're like, Hey doc, my knee's not really hurting anymore. Do I still need to do the surgery? 
And of course, my answer to that was, well, heck no. You know, if your knee's not hurting, why do the surgery? So I started seeing that more and more. And then that got me really interested in this. Um, and then as I kind of look more and I look to my own performance and health, I still, even, even on a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet, I still had a few, you know, I thought it was just aches and pains from aging that as I shifted over a, to a fully carnivorous diet, those things all went away. And I mean, I got stronger, I got leaner, I got faster. My power output got better. All my aches and pains disappeared. And, and this is at this point, I was 50 years old. And I was like, this is pretty cool. And so then it just kind of, you know, snowballed from there. And then I convinced a bunch of crazy people to try it with me. And then the story keeps repeating itself over and over again. So I think there's something really there. And, you know, fast forward to almost five years later, since I've been doing this, um, we now have, you know, research being done on this. We have lots and lots of physicians, thousands of physicians that have sort of bought into this, tens, of, if not hundreds of thousands of people that have not tried this with, you know, varying degrees of success. Many of them, tremendous, dramatic levels of success, things you would like never associate getting better. These are lifelong progressive diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. People that have been on medication for decades are now coming off all their medications and saying, I'm fixed. And so that to me is, as a physician, is exciting. Now, of course, a lot of people don't like that. You know, they don't like the fact that they're eating meat. They don't like the fact that they're not on drugs. You know, drug companies don't like the fact that they're not on drugs anymore. So we get a lot of pushback, as you might imagine. Of course. Well, it's, it's definitely not in the, the food pyramid. It was still not. Uh, dude, it's, it's funny. So I'll give you kind of the, the cultural connotation that I faced. Okay, especially so my background is Middle Eastern. Um, it, it's not, it could be a very healthy diet, but it also could be a very unhealthy one, right? We, we consume a lot of bread, a lot of carbs. Definitely. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a belly packed, uh, a diet. And one of the things I always used to hear when I was younger is that meat is bad. like, you know, there was always this notion that meat isn't, isn't healthy for you. Right. And, and I got to this point now where it's like, well, if you're already in an unhealthy state, certainly more meat on an unhealthy body or unhealthy diet is not going to make you healthy. So you have to make fundamental shifts from a baseline. The other thing was that I had uric acid from, it was a, you know, hereditary. It wasn't even um, much related to my diet, but that was another thing, you know, that doctors would tell me not to consume a lot of meat because of, of the high intake of purine, purine. And ever since I've been on this diet, I've had record lows of, of uric acid. And not only that, but even certain things that my friends recognize, one being Patrick, we were in Cali recently, and I was always known in the group to have not the best memory when it came to like, you know, personal things like birthdays, I would always miss them for, you know, I was, I was that kind of guy. And, and my memory just is, is sharper than ever. I'm recalling things of like when I was in like, like, like 15, like very detailed activities we used to do. Anyways, I don't know how much that is related to the diet, but just as a personal anecdote, and I don't know if you faced those negative connotations when you started doing this yourself. Yeah. So I think, you know, a couple of, there's a couple of interesting points there. So I think, you know, first of all, recognizing that, you know, the part of the world that you come from is considered the breadbasket of the world. This is where agriculture first developed. And so I do think, you know, if we look at, you know, some of these sort of Middle Eastern regions, you know, the Persia and, and this sort of, you know, that part of the world, grain was a very early part of the diet. And so probably you have a higher capacity to tolerate that than someone say someone that's living in Northern Europe or, you know, Alaska or something like that. You know, these people definitely didn't get exposed to that later. Pacific Islands, for instance. And we see that everywhere where that sort of grain-based diet has been exported to, the later a population is exposed to it, the worse they do. You know, we see this particularly Native Americans. We see this First Nations, Alaska. We see this in uh, uh, the Pacific Islands, especially. And so I think there is some degree of that. Now, meat, you know, Meat is common to every human that has existed on the planet. There's never been a meatless society. I mean, there's a couple of people doing vegan, vegan now, but that's not our history as, as a species. And I think what we're seeing is, you know, with the modern diet, we are seeing, and, and you kind of alluded to this, we're seeing shifts in the way our system works, our digestive system, and perhaps. And so we see these sort of associations with meat and certain disease states. You know, some people will say cardiovascular disease, some people will look at uh, things like colorectal cancer. These are the two ones that most people talk about. And I think what we're seeing is a couple of things. One is, as I talked about at the beginning, nutritional epidemiology is just not very good science. You know, you take, you ask 50,000 people what they ate last year and they kind of guess and remember and the, and the, the reliability of that data is, is very weak at best. And then you sort of plug that into a formula, you try to correct for some confounding factors. You never really get it right. And then you come up with a relationship and sometimes it shows a positive relationship. Sometimes it shows a negative relationship and you take the sum of all of them and you say, well, this is what the overall preponderance shows. And there's a slight, you know, slight increased risk 
relative risk of you know, 15, 20% for say red meat causes colorectal cancer. That is really not very strong relationships. But I think part of that has to do with, you know, there's a thing called healthy user bias. So if, if like you heard as a kid, you heard, you know, meat is not really healthy for you. Eat your fruits and vegetables, exercise, don't smoke, don't drink, wear your seatbelt. If you say, I don't believe in that stuff. I'm just going to eat, I'm going to eat meat. So if you're eating meat, you're more likely to smoke. You're more likely to drink. You're more likely to not exercise. You're, you're just more likely to engage in overall unhealthy behaviors that's going on. But I think also what's going on is we see that, you know, some of these compounds that people talk about that occur in the gut when you eat red meat doesn't seem to happen in a healthy gut. So if you have a dysbiotic gut, a gut that is not functioning right, you have different bacteria in there. They may convert some of the compounds in meat into these potentially negative substances. I'll use something called TMA, which will later convert into TMAO. It's trimethylamine. If you have a healthy gut biome, then the, the amount of TMA you produce is much lower. But if you stick meat into an unhealthy environment, then yes, it may potentially have some sort of deleterious problem. Now, the problem is what you're seeing is if you eat meat plus no junk food, you probably are going to be fine. That's why you like the diet you're on, meat and some fruit and some vegetables, probably okay. If you combine meat with the standard American diet, that is burger, you know, bun, French fries, Coca-Cola, you know, frosty, hot apple pie, which is, which is a context that most people eat meat in this country then you're going to have issues. You know, if you look at the, even the epidemiologic studies out of Asia, a majority, a plurality of those studies don't show a relationship between red meat and colorectal cancer. And it's probably because of the context in which way, the way meat is eaten over there. It's not that, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're doing so they have different meat. They just have different other foods that go with it. They don't typically now, you know, in, in recent times, in the last few decades, that has started to shift as we're Westernizing the rest of the world. And they're all, right. we're exporting our, basically garbage food around the world. We're seeing it. You're seeing it in the Middle East, you know, obviously know. that's the thing. Oh, there's there's, there's uh, diabetes and obesity is running rampant across the Middle East. And so, and that's just right. going to continue until people figure that out. And I don't know if they will. I mean, there's, there is, uh, uh, you know, just tremendous financial forces that, that would prefer you stay like you are. Um, you know, if you look at the food industry, it's a $7 trillion industry. The pharmaceutical industry is multi-trillion dollar industry. They like it where they're at. And, and, you know, they got, they got a lot of marketing money and some of that marketing is research. They research is marketing for these guys. And, you know, interestingly, if you're a researcher and you pr produce a study that is not friendly to whatever the food company that paid for or the pharmacy gets, guess how much funding you're going to get for your next research project? None. And so, you know, I, I always laugh when I hear the, the, the preponderance, preponderance of the evidence shows. I said, well, the preponderance of the evidence reflects whoever paid for the evidence, you know, and, that, and that's, that's, a, that's a sad situation there. Yeah, well, speaking of the Middle East, I think Kuwait is probably one of the top five. I don't know exactly where it ranks. It's one of the, I think maybe number two, right? I've seen that about Kuwait. I can't, yeah, they, they, it, it depends who you read, but we Depen hear Mexico, yeah. Kuwait, you know, different countries are just huge with obesity and diabetes. Yeah, it's, 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 and a lot of it is fast food. It's not like sure, the common sure. traditional foods that we eat, sure. right? It is absolutely, absolutely. The, all the traditional food chains. So on, on this topic, I think one of the, the interesting things you were saying is uh, your gut health, right? And, and, and where the starting point is. For a lot of people listening, I suspect that not everybody's on a you know, carnivore diet, maybe in the same way that you're doing it, or even the way I'm doing it. And what's important is kind of to do a reset, right? Maybe a little bit of a calibration. I don't know if, if you've seen, or is, is that kind of what you recommend? But if an average person came to you today and said, listen, doctor, uh, I, want, I want to start this uh, kind of diet. How can I go about it? Do I go full carnivore day one? Or are there certain things I taper down on and then get yeah, to the yeah. stage where I'm. Yeah. Carnivore? I mean, I, I think, and this is interesting about the company that we have and we're, we're working on figuring this out and we've got some neat stuff coming out that we're going to use to sort of collect data and, 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 and interpret that data to help us do this. But I think in general, I mean, you know, if you look at an sort of an evolutionary model to inform us how we eat, and, and I think that's reasonable to do, you know, if, if I were to take a zebra and I were to say, and I were to go to grocery shopping for the zebra and bring the zebra through the store and say, well, what do you want to eat zebra? That's not how I would, that's not how you would feed a zebra. You would go look what the zebra eats in the wild and you would say, this is what does he read? They eat grass and a few other bushes, right? You wouldn't go to the store and say, does he like Twinkies? Does he like Coke? Um, we don't have wild humans anymore that we can observe. We've got some indigenous tribes, which don't really reflect the true wild human state. I think humans in the past did not, the, the indigenous tribes have been pushed and they've been relegated to the worst potential places in the world. The rest of the people have taken over all the good land, all the good fertile areas are taken over by agricultural humans. 
these hunter gatherers are living off scraps, right? So don't pattern our diet off of those guys. If you go back far enough, we see that we were hunting big megafaunal animals, these big herbivores, mega herbivores, and we were very good at it. I mean, that's the only job we had. So I think that's our wild type diet. But I think, so if we say, well, what was, and, and people argue about that. Well, maybe they ate a lot of plants and fiber and fruits and, and nuts and, and berries. Okay, if you, even if you accept that, and I think there's reason to say that that was probably a smaller part of the diet. What we certainly were not eating was high fructose corn syrup. We were not eating soybean oil. We were not eating refined grain sure, products. Nice. We were not eating artificial sweeteners and flavors and all that stuff. So get that stuff out first. Stick with the whole natural foods, the foods that you can one, one that have one ingredient, my gosh. And then I think, you know, from there, if you still don't solve the problems then start paring down to sort of going down to more of a meat-based diet. And I think um, that's how I would approach it. Now, I think for me, you know, if, if we make the assumption that nutrition impacts our health, and I think it's a very safe assumption. I think clearly most people would argue, yes, nutrition impacts our health. And some people will say, well, maybe for diabetes and heart disease, but I would argue for pretty much every health condition we have, whether it's mental health, joint health, skin health, autoimmune health, hormone health, all that is impacted significantly by um, our diet. And so when you're trying to figure that out, it's difficult when you have 75 different foods in your diet, which one is causing the problem. So I like a meat-based diet like a, as an elimination diet because it's very, very um, simple. For one, it's sustainable. You can do it. I've been on a meat-based diet, pretty much straight meat for almost five years, and I'm totally fine. You can totally live this way. You don't have to. Um, it's not something that, uh, you know, some people love it. Some people do fine. I personally feel and perform great on it, and I'm fine. I'm, I don't miss the other food. Um, but when you eliminate everything, then it becomes very easy to slowly put things back in and say, okay, what was the reaction I had to that? Did that flare up my knee arthritis or did it not? When I was an orthopedic surgeon operating all the time, people would come into me and they would say, hey, you know, every time I eat gluten or bread, my knee hurts. And I would kind of look at them like they're crazy. Like, I don't believe this crap. You're just crazy. You know, I didn't, you know, I didn't pay any attention to that because I wasn't trained that way. I mean, certainly I was given a scalpel, some drugs and a, and a, and a mallet, you know, basically this is orthopedics. And, you know, and, and now that I've come to realize that food dramatically imp impacts people's joint health and every other part of their health. So I think uh, it's a great reset button. I think if you're going to do it like in a strict sense, three months, maybe six months, reset everything and then and then slowly one ingredient at a time, you know, figure out what you can add back in. That's how I, I recommend people do it. It's hilarious when you say one ingredient uh, at a time, for God's sake, like it's, it's crazy that how simple and, and how logical that seems, but how complicated we've made things to be, yeah. right? Yeah, we, you know, we've got apps and we've got uh, Fitbits and all this stuff to tell us how to eat and behave. And, I'm, and the animals are looking at us like, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> I crazy. mean, you know, how, many, how, many, you know, how many fat birds or, you know, fat lions or any animal, any wild animal, fat squirrels you see out there, almost none. And they're, and they're all healthy and running around and they're not measuring stuff and not taking 700 lambs a week. You know, it's just, it's just uh, kind of crazy. We can't have a simple eating pattern. It's like breathing. You know, I'm just like, I don't have somebody telling me how many times a day I have to breathe or how deep my breath has to be. It should be very natural. Eating, I think, should be very simple and it should not require a calculator. Do you ever introduce cheat days? Like, let's say you, 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 uh, you go out to a restaurant, are you still eating steaks? Or do you ever have once a week, once a month where you, you can eat whatever you want and it's not, it doesn't have to be a carnivore diet? Well, I mean, I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want, quite honestly. And I, every day for me is a cheat day because I'm eating ribeye steak. So, I mean, that, that nice. is, you know, no, but I mean, to, to, to be more serious about your question, there have been times <laughs> when like my kid has had a birthday and That's just because I mean. like it's his birthday, I'll have a piece of cake. And, you know, and, you know, it tastes pretty good. It, it doesn't taste as good as I remember it. You know, it doesn't like, oh, God, I'm missing out. It usually tastes like, eh, it's okay. And I remember the f a few occasions, I think, uh, I haven't had, you know, I think it was over a year since I've done that. And I had two, I've got several kids. One of the kids had a birthday, I ate a piece of cake, and I literally got sick to my stomach. I was literally throwing up because I just wasn't used to all the sugar and crap sure. in there. And then the next one I had, a, it was a piece of, I think it was cheesecake, which is maybe a little less process perhaps. And, and I, and I was fine with that. So, okay. um, so I don't, this isn't a dogma to me. This isn't reverse veganism. I don't feel like, Oh my God, I had a blueberry. <laughs> I, you know, I can't live with myself anymore. It's, you know, it's, and I tell people that this should not be this. The reason you do this is to be healthy and to be nourished correctly. And if, you know, these small 
divergences make it sustainable for you, then I think that's fine. Now, the problem is some people can't do that. Some people, it's like a heroin addict. And it's just like, yeah, you know, I've been off heroin for six months. I'm going to take a little shot just because for, just because it was my birthday. And then six months later, they're laying in an alley, you know? So, I mean, you know, you see the same people, they've, you know, they have a, they have a piece of chocolate and then six months later, they're diabetic from, you know, going on a crazy binge for six binge. months. So you just have to be able to, to, I think, have the mental discipline to handle that. So I don't program cheat days. I don't plan for cheat days. If something happens, you know, sometimes my girlfriend say, hey, I got a piece of fruit. It's really sweet. You want to try a bite? And I'll say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have a bite. And I'll have a bite. And that's about it. But I don't sit there and go, okay, every seventh day, I'm going to have a cheat day. Just That's just not part of my calculus. Gotcha. Um, before we get into kind of the, like what objections you hear, which I'm sure, I'm sure being on this side is, is, is tough, especially with a sensitive culture that, that's coming up and, Obviously, the, the, the world of veganism, vegetarian, all, all that aspect that's not uh, a carnivore-based diet. For people wondering, like, what does a day in the life look like in terms of your diet from the time you wake up to the time you sleep? Is it just steaks? Well, I mean, it can be, and it often is. And I, I probably did that for about two or three years where I just ate steaks all day, every day, sometimes burger patties, and that was it. Um, you know, in recent times, I've, I've kind of, you know, played with adding a little bit more eggs in there. Sometimes it'll be a little bit of dairy. Um, I honestly feel better on just steaks, which I did, you know, this, we just got done with January being World Carnivore Month. We've done that every year for four years. And for me, because I'm always on a meat-based diet, you know, the, the only difference was I just kind of tightened things up and just went straight red meat again. And I felt fantastic. I feel great. I got leaner, you know, lost about 10 pounds. You know, and I'd previously been trying to gain weight and got, got heavier, but it was just kind of, you got leaned out. So, um, you know, typically I eat two meals a day. That's a pretty typical pattern for me. Um, in recent times, I've shifted those. My eating sort of timed earlier in the day. I just find that I do better um, and sleep better and all that stuff if I eat earlier. That just works better for me and it works better for my schedule. Um, so that's that, that's kind of the meals. I mean, somewhere, now again, take it in mind, I'm a big 250-pound, five athletic guy. I put down about four pounds of meat a day. That's like a baby gorilla, man. <laughs> yeah, kind of like, well, you know, it's kind of interesting. I'm not far from the size of a gorilla, you know, silverback, big male gorilla, <laughs> no, silverback gorilla, maybe 300 pounds. I'm just slightly under that. And they eat something like 40 to 60 pounds of vegetation a day because what their digestive tract is so inefficient. They've got to eat so much food and they have this huge, huge fer fermentation chamber, which is their, their hindgut. Uh, they actually have to eat their own feces to, to recycle, to get enough B12, which is kind of, kind of gross, but the way they do it, fortunately I'm, I'm, humans don't do I'll it. So I can capsules. make, what's that? I'll stick to capsules, man. Pill yeah. Food. Well, yeah. I mean, I'd just, just eat meat and you'd eat meat, even better. Yeah. yeah. Just eat meat and get plenty of B12. But uh, exactly. so, I mean, you know, you think about it, I can say, I can maintain literally the same muscle mass and weight as a silverback gorilla by eating 10% of the food that they're eating. You know, I'm eating four pounds, they're eating 40 pounds. So it talks, to, it talks to us about the efficiency of meat versus plant food. And meat is just very much more efficient to, uh, you know, to, to be absorbed, to be, you know, bioavailable, so on and so forth. Do you ever hear that object, sticking to, to, to the gorilla theme here, uh, a, a lot of these big animals like horses, rhinos, elephants, gorillas, all of them are, are um, you know. Vegetarian, uh, vegan, yeah. Well, they yeah. eat plants, right? Yeah, sure. Exactly. So they have a plant-based diet, herbivores. That's the word I was uh, looking for. Uh -huh. um, so if that ever comes up in a conversation, what do you usually uh, say back to, to, to folks who bring up this as a kind of a debate or a talk? Well, a yeah. I mean, I mean, first of all, our digestive systems are nowhere even close. I mean, we don't even have the same, our, our anatomy is vastly different. You know, if we look at the fermentation capacity of a, of a typical primate, chimpanzee, gorilla, something like 50 to 60% of their anatomy is dedicated to fermentation. That is taking plant fiber down, using microbiome, digest it, turn it into short chain fatty acids. Humans have about 17% of our gut that can do that. We are very much similar to both cats and dogs, which have about 15, 18% of their gut dedicated to fermentation capacity. The other thing is, you know, they, they will look how big the gorilla is. Again, they're eating 40 pounds. How much does a horse eat? They eat hundred pounds of grass a day. You know, it's just massive amounts of food. But if we want to talk about big animals, the biggest animal on this planet is something called a blue whale. A blue whale is hundred percent carnivore. They eat no plants. They eat an entirely animal-based diet. And they are the biggest animal by far, the biggest, strongest thing that lives on this planet. 
They are purely carnivore. So, I mean, that argument about strong and different animals, again, different digestive systems, different food inputs, uh, you know, a gorilla spends 80% of its waking hours literally chewing all day long. They chew. That's all they do. And then they probably spent 20% of the day pooping it all out. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> we're designed differently. You know, if you, if you, and, and you know, you can determine, uh, there's a way that the paleoanthropologists determine uh, by using, looking at jaw size and jaw structure, how much chewing an animal will do. And they've determined that early humans or early hominids or hominins, I guess I'm a correct term now, spend about 4% of their time chewing. Again, 4% of your time chewing versus a gorilla spending 80% of its day chewing, you know? Mm. And so how do you get 4% of your time chewing and get enough calories? Well, the only way you do that is getting a very highly calorie rich, nutrient dense diet. And how do you get that? It's not from eating raspberries and twigs. It's from eating animals and particularly animal fat. And so that's, that's what sort of drove our evolutionary uh, process. That's why we have a big brain. That's why we are, that's why we are who we are. That's why we are the, we are the apex predator species on the planet. There is no animal on the planet that humans have not killed and eaten. I mean, there's nothing, nothing out there that's an animal that we've not eaten. I mean, lions are great hunters, but they don't eat whales. You know, sharks are great hunters, but they don't eat cows. You know, it's just, and we eat it all. We have figured out how to eat it all because of, this is our weapon. We have the biggest, baddest weapon on the planet, which is our brain and our collective ability to communicate and hunt in, in packs. The closest thing that comes to that is, is, is chimpanzees. Chimpanzees are terrifying hunters. I mean, and they hunt monkeys. If you look up red colobus monkeys and chimpanzees hunting, they will hunt them in packs and they will, they will chase mm -hmm. them down. They'll corner them. They'll run them. They'll, they're very smart. They, they, they're very cooperative and they'll stab them with uh, spears, uh, you know, rip them apart. Monkeys are tremendous hunters, but we are just, you know, we are that times a thousand as far as mm -hmm. what we're able to do. Yeah. It's funny because as humans, we're omnivores at the same time, right? Like, and I think that's where it gets tricky is that you're able to, to survive on a different, on different types of diets, right? Right. I, I would call, I would definitely say we are humans are omnivores. I would also categorize this as facultative carnivores. And what that means as opposed to an obligate carnivore, a facultative carnivore thrives on meat. That is the mm -hmm. better diet. Although we certainly, and, and fortunately we've retained some of the capacity to still make do on plant foods, because what happened was with our species, and many people don't realize this, human brain size peaked roughly around 125,000 years ago at about 1,500 cc's. In fact, the Neanderthal brain size was actually 1,700 cc's. So Neanderthals even had a bigger brain than us. And they've, they've, they, they were, they lived, they've lived longer than the, the human species been on the planet. So they were more successful. Homo erectus being the most successful human species at about 1.8 million years of occupying the, the, the planet. Homo sapien, 300,000 years so far is what we've been here. But our brain size started to decline after we lost these mega herbivores, after we saw the loss of the mammoth and the mastodon and some of these woolly rhinoceros and these big giant, you know, uh, you know, other grazing animals, as that occurred, um, we lost the ability to excess fat. Um, we started hunting leaner and leaner animals. Uh, we had to start relying on more plants to, uh, to sustain us. And fortunately we could, but at the, at the same time, and then we developed agriculture at the same time, it allowed the human species to flourish from a population standpoint, but our individual health declined. And so we became shorter by about six inches. Our brain size shrunk by about 200 cc's. Our bones became weaker, our teeth became weaker, our muscles became smaller. That's been, uh, you know, that's been the history of the human species on a decline ever since. And I would argue we're getting worse, you know, with the new industrial diet, we're just, you know, now we're just becoming, we're evolving into these obese or skinny fat, you know, weak, slow moving, slow witted uh, people, you know, I mean, you know, you would say that we, we you know, look how much we've accomplished as human beings, you know, we have computers and technology and we've been on the moon, but I would argue that that's, that's a collective intelligence. That's not individual intelligence. And I think if I were to put you out in the woods by yourself and say, survive, you better be smart to survive because it's tough out there. And you've got to be able to outthink all these animals that have, that have evolved out there to be able to survive. You're not going to, you know, you watch any of these survival shows, Naked and Afraid or so on and so forth. And I've interviewed some of these people that have done that. And, you know, if you're not eating meat, you're dead. <laughs> I mean, right. If you can't figure out how to kill these animals, you're dead. And, and, you know, this is something that, you know, you, you know, I don't know where the brain size went, what we lost, but you think about it, maybe you you had better sense of smell or better, better vision or better perception, how to integrate the different clues in the environment right now. I mean, you think about it, how hard is it to exist as a human being these days? I mean, you got to know how to dial a phone. 
That's I mean, hard, basically, man. I mean, yeah, hard, yeah. call Uber Eats, lay around your house, call Uber Eats and collect unemployment. I mean, that is the difficulty it is to be a human these days. So it doesn't take much smarts, right? <laughs> you know? So I mean, store has all your food. Right, right. Yeah. So you don't have to think anymore. I mean, it's, it's literally we're in a brainless existence. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, that part is, is certainly interesting. And it's funny about, I think you brought this up quickly about the, the satiation, right? Like on this kind of diet, you don't feel that you, you necessarily uh, are attracted to, to wanting sweets or something like that. I was watching uh, Super Size Me, you know, the McDonald's documentary. Yeah, Morgan Spurlock's movie, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, I don't know why it just came up and I was interested to rewatch it. And this was back in 04. And he's talking about how he, every time he'd had a meal, he always feels hungry like an hour after. But the interesting part, one of the, one of the uh, people he was speaking with was as soon as you mix and match foods. So let's say, you know, I was to eat uh, seven burgers after the second one, I'm going to get tired of it. Right. But if you introduce like a piece of nugget or a fry or I, I have a sip of that Coke, immediately it triggers something where now I'm, I'm satiated again to continue eating the burgers. So even that mix and matching, I think, uh, causes a lot of issues in terms of weight gain and, and just unhealthiness, really. Yeah, I mean, that's why you can always eat dessert. I mean, you know, you can stuff yourself and you're like, you've got your foot sticking out and you're like, and somebody said, hey, you want a piece of pie? You always can find a room for a piece of pie. I mean, there's, there's, there's some of that's palate fatigue from one type of food. But, you know, you brought up the point about, you know, suppressing cravings. I mean, this is something this diet does very, very well. And a lot of people report that unique to any diet, any other diet out there is they just don't want the other stuff or they find for the first time in their life, they are able to overcome those cravings, which sabotage so many of our diets. I mean, you, you know, it's really tough to lose weight, go on a diet and constantly be craving something else or constantly hungry or not liking the food. I mean, you know, this is a problem with some of these, you know, low fat, you know, cardboard based diets. I mean, they just don't taste very good. And it's just like, you know, you can do it for two or three weeks and then you're like, screw it, man, I'm going to eat some ice cream. You know, and this is what happens over and over again. And that's why it never succeeds. But, you know, this thing, you know, you're getting, what I think, you know, bacon and eggs, steak and eggs, really tasty, delicious food that also happens to be satiating for most people, uh, you know, and, and, and it, you know, you're not hungry, you know, that, and that's the other thing, you know, I don't care who you are, you can't walk around being hungry all the time. I mean, it, you eventually cave into that. So you've got to, you know, the two, two requirements, I think, for a successful diet are, are you got to like the food and you can't be hungry all the time. I think, you know, if you don't have those, absent of those, you know, you're destined for, for long-term failure. And, and with a, with a carnivore based diet, like, do you need, uh, because the other end of this, and this is the, the, the last question on, on this front, but in terms of both fiber and high cholesterol, right. That comes up a lot. Uh, I, I don't know if it was when you were with, with Joe Rogan talking about this, but when he was doing the 30 day carnivore diet, he talked about having a bit of uh, diarrhea in the beginning, not anymore. I think it's kind of sustained now, but that's personally what he was experiencing. So curious, like, uh, have you had any issues on, on that side with fiber and also high cholesterol in the blood. Sure, sure, sure. So I'll, t- I'll touch on the fiber issue first because that's a, that's a really common co- topic and we're kind of Talk. goofing around this month calling it fiber-free February. I just published some articles <laughs> out there, you know. So fiber, I think, is conditionally beneficial. It's not essential. I mean, if it, was, if it were essential, I would be dead because I've not eaten fiber in almost five years. I'm fine. I mean, my gut, my gut health is wonderful. I've got no problems. I feel great. I don't even know. I'm, I mean, I literally have four pounds of steak in my stomach less than an hour ago. And I don't even know I've eaten. I mean, I literally do not feel anything. And that's how it should be. You think about it. But you, you know, don't feel hungry. No, I'm not hungry. I said four pounds of meat. <laughs> You're good to go. You're good to I'm go. good to go. And I'll be good to go to tomorrow, most likely. So, but you think about it, your gut should not hurt in any, you know, you know, there's two things that are going on. If your stomach hurts, if you have reflux or you have bloating or gas or discomfort or pain or constipation, then there's one of two things going on. Either the food is wrong or your guts are sick. Those are the two options. You know, you would not accept your chest hurting if you went out running, you know, you'd say, oh my God, I'm chest pain. If your lungs were hurting, you're mm-hmm. coughing all the time, you'd say that's not correct. If your knees or back hurt all the time, clearly that's not correct. But we accept bloating. I see a lot of these fitness influencers talking about their bloated guts and oh embrace it it's normal it's not normal it's common but it's not normal and the reason is is because all this fiber so that we're being forced all this fiber on us um, and we're not we just don't have a good capacity to deal with that much fiber so what we see and, and the literature shows us in a number of studies you know removing fiber removes those issues and i see that over and over again um, the fiber conditionally being beneficial 
if you are on a standard American junk food diet, which most people are, this is the, 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 the easiest diet to stick to is a standard American diet because it's convenient, it tastes good and it's cheap, right? I mean, that's the easiest diet out there. Everybody's on that mostly, you know, or some form or fashion of it, except for a few weirdos that care about their health, right? Um, so when you put fiber in that diet, you are offsetting some of the glycemic response. You know, like I said, if you eat an apple and check your blood glucose 10 minutes later, or you swig it out, swig a, uh, a glass of apple juice, you know, and you check your blood glucose later, your blood glucose is going to be a lot higher after the apple juice. Mm -hmm. Even if you, and they've done studies, even if you eat them at the exact same speed, you slowly slip the app, slip the apple juice, or you eat the, eat the, eat the apple, same calories, you know, you, you know, control for calories. So we see a different glycemic response. Um, fiber is, is, has a satiating effect. It's, it's a mechanoreceptor. If you just shove a bunch of food fiber down your gullet and you stretch everything out, it will, temporarily blunt your hunger. Now you're not getting great nutrition out of that, but you're, just, you're, you're losing some of the uh, hunger signals because there's mechanoreceptors or, you know, they, 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 they sense the capacity of what's going on in your digestive tract. So you don't eat so much, you explode, right? I mean, that would be a bad thing if you ate more than you could, you can mechanically hold. So that's going on. That's why one of the, the people on these high fiber plant-based diets often will lose weight because they're not really getting much nutrition. They're getting a lot of volume but they're not getting much nutrition. So they're actually just, and everything ends up, ends up in the toilet, by the way, they go to the bathroom like three or four times a day. They have giant bowel movements. You know, it's like constant, you know, their, their, their guts are filled, full with crap. You know, if anything is rotting in your guts, it's plant-based fiber, not meat. Meat is completely digested and absorbed in the small intestine. So this belief that meat is rotting in your colons is absolute garbage. doesn't happen, doesn't occur. There's ileostomy patients that have confirmed this. There's studies that show that but this is just the narrative that's out there. So fiber, I think, and the other big sort of thought now is fiber is healthy for our microbiome. This is the latest sort of thing we hear. And you got to remember, fiber is cheap agricultural waste. This is what it is. All the fiber that's been added to uh, you know, processed food, methyl cellulose, some of these things is cheap, very cheap, highly profitable volume for you to eat. You know, you can get a cookie and they put fiber in there and it increases the volume by 10%. Well, guess what? You know, it's just a matter of you know, cutting your cost of goods sold, right? I mean, it's just like, <laughs> I'm going to make the cost of goods cheaper by throwing fiber in there and I'm going to make more profit on that. So this is where we get this. This is fiber is great for us. But with the gut microbiome, so they say that, well, fiber, certain types of fiber, insoluble fiber, for instance, will interact with the microbiome and short chain fatty acids will be eluded. You know, butyrate is one they like to talk to. And butyrate seems to have... Uh, a positive benefit on the colonic mucosa, or the mucosa, the, or the little fluid layer that sits on top of the cells. But, buter, butyric acid is very similar to something called beta-hydroxybutyrate. They're, they're one hydroxyl molecule away or an OH molecule away. It's an interconvertible reaction. If you go on a low carbohydrate diet and you start producing any degree of ketones, the main ketone in the blood is beta hydroxybutyrate. Beta-hydroxybutyrate gets to those same colon cells and basically does the same thing as the butyrate that you're getting from the fiber does. So you don't need fiber to get that same sort of benefit. Also, protein can be converted into short-chain fatty acids as well. You can make methylbutyrate, you can make propionate, you can make acetate. Those things also likely have beneficial roles on the colonic mucosa. So this sort of, you got to eat fiber for your microbiome is kind of half the story. You don't have to do that. You can get butyrate from eating butter, by the way. Butter is butter has got butyrate in it too. So, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, yeah, it may be helpful, but there's two or three other ways you can do the same thing without that. And uh, um, let's go on. I guess cholesterol. Cholesterol is a great topic. Um, when I look at, and so interestingly, this is something that is very much excited me. So I've been doing this for five years now. I've been making this argument. I've been showing person after person after person after person getting better, getting better, showing their labs, showing their x-ray results, showing their colonoscopy results. Look, this isn't placebo effect. People are getting better. You know, pictures of people losing a hundred pounds. Clearly it's not fake. It's really happening, you know, and, and still it's like, well, where's the studies? Where's the studies? Well, studies are being published right now. There are three of them are about to be published this year. And I'm aware of all of them. Uh, there was, there, there's been a few case reports over the years, but Harvard university has got one in 2000 people doing this, doing this diet. I've seen the, the, the data on that study. I know the results are going to come out very favorable for, favorable for a carnivore diet. Um, there's a study 
uh, out, of, out of Sweden, it just came to, just came out looking at small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, looking at a case series. Every single person that went on the carnivore diet cured their small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. There's a study on psychological aspects, looking at 300 people on a carnivore diet. All of them did it for health. All of them got great health out, outcome benefits. And so I am fundraising for a very large clinical trial intervention trial with this diet as part of it. So these things are coming out. These things are happening. But with regard to the cholesterol, when you go on, you know, just a low carb diet in general or a higher fat diet, some people will see their cholesterol not change at all. Some people see it go down. Some people see it go up. And so the criticism is about those people to see their cholesterol go up. Is that a problem? And the answer to that question is, I don't know that we know for sure. I think that there's a lot of associative data out there. There's a lot of data out there that says that high blood cholesterol is associated with cardiovascular disease. They're refining that message now and they're saying, well, it's this particular type of cholesterol. It is the ApoB fragment. It is the LP little a fragment. It is, you know, this ratio or that ratio. Cholesterol is unreliable in the absence of LP little a, so on and so forth. So we're seeing more and more of this nuance being seen out there with the cholesterol. And, you know, again, cholesterol is a risk factor for disease. And so if your cholesterol goes up on this diet, I want to know what else is going on. I'm saying, is that a problem? It might be, you know, it might be, and you might have to pick a different course. But for most people, what we see is the cholesterol may elevate, but the triglycerides will drop dramatically. We, you know, the LDL cholesterol goes up and the triglycerides drop, the HDL may, may, may go up. Uh, which is considered a favorable thing. The triglycerides going down is a favorable thing. The blood pressure may improve. The obesity may improve. The visceral fat, the fatty liver may improve. Uh, the overall body composition may, may improve. The heart rate may go down. The blood pressure may go down. The inflammatory, systemic inflammatory markers may go down. All of these things get better. And so the only thing you see is elevated LDL cholesterol. And so the question is, is that truly a problem in that particular cohort? The answer is, I don't think we really know. Now, what I do with those people in those situations, I say, go get your carotid vessels looked at, depending on what age you are. Go get your coronary artery calcium scan to see what the actual vessels are doing to get an idea if there's actually disease progressing, not just based on risk factor, because risk factors, again, they're conditional. There are lots and lots. In fact, the majority of people that have heart attacks have quote unquote normal cholesterol. You know, cholesterol we think is favorable. So there has to be something more to it. So it's a dependent variable. So cholesterol is up, but what else is going on? Same thing with gout and uric acid. We could talk about that if you wanted to. But um, so I think it's important to put it in context, to be more nuanced. If your cholesterol is up, you should be asking questions, not just knee jerk. Because the doctors, physicians don't have time. I mean, they're seeing patients every 15 minutes. And, and 10 of it, that, that 10 minutes is spent typing on the computer. So they don't have time to think and ask questions and be nuanced. It's like, oh, your cholesterol's high. Here's your statin prescription. Go on a low-fat diet. See you, see you in six months. That is the level of sophistication we're at. Where that is nowhere, we're, nowhere close to what the science currently shows. And so you have to say, okay, well, what about all these other risk factors? Can I get some advanced testing? Can I get some imaging done? As a patient, you should be asking for that stuff. As a patient, you should be asking the big insurance companies to pay for that stuff or to, exactly. to figure out say. how to do that. What's that? Like as, a, as, as a Canadian in the U S the, 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 the cost is, is the, the issue with that. Right. And not, not that, you know, I, obviously you never put a price on health, but that's the kind of the issue, right? It's like in that full cycle that we talked about, you go, you see a general physician nine times out of 10, they're also not in peak. Like I have yet to find a general physician who's six foot five, two fifty pounds and like lean as fuck. You know what I mean? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, doctors don't, and doctors don't know anything about, they don't know anything about nutrition. Don't go to a doctor for nutrition advice. If you are, you're, you're, you'll be lucky if you find one that knows much about it. That's, you know, it's like going to an auto mechanic to, to discuss, you know, kitchen, you know, kitchen tiling. I mean, it's just, it's just not the right specialty. So doctors aren't trained in that. I mean, I wasn't trained on this position. I had to do this stuff on my own. Now, fortunately, I had a, I had a, I had a scientific background and inquisitive mind and, you know, I've, I've tested it and I've looked at it and I've read just, gobs and gobs of literature on this. I've been doing this for a decade. Um, same thing with, you know, workout advice. I mean, doctors are not there for your health. They're there for your sickness. I mean, it exactly. really is a disease management model. It's, it's not healthcare, thing, right? I yeah, guess it's reactive. It's not, it's, yeah. We don't have the yeah. prevention stuff that's out there. We give lip service to, they talk about a few things, go get your colonoscopy, get, do your mammograms. It's all weak sauce. I mean, it's weak. I mean, it's not, you know, if we had any teeth in it, I will tell you what, if physicians were, if you had one metric for, with regard to chronic disease, all you did was gave them a tape measure and say, measure everybody's waist 
and compare it to their height and we get a waste to height ratio. And that's what we're going to pay you on. We're going to pay you on getting people, you know, slim down in the waist. That would transform the entire disease management industry. You would have patients getting healthy. You wouldn't make a lot of money. There's not a lot of drugs to be sold to do that because, you know, how do you, how do you fix that? We well, can send people there for gastric bypass or you put them on some crazy drugs, but in general, you would force you to figure out lifestyle and diet and, you know, it would cost next to nothing. I mean, it's just give everybody a tape measure and a $2 tape measure and say, Hey, come back with a, you know, if you're six foot tall, come back with a waist that's under 36 inches uh, or whatever that converts to in, in centimeters. Sorry. I don't know off the top of my head, but <laughs> no, it's all good. But yeah, it's true, man. It's true. It's uh, even, even with like fats, as an example, you bring up butter, like that was also right. Fiber, cholesterol, sugar, fat, like fat was always a misnomer, right? Because people would be like, Oh, too much fat is good. Then they started understanding unsaturated fats. They lightened up to like almond butter. Um, and even I guarantee you, you ask 80% of Americans, is butter good or bad for you? What do you think the reply would be? And that's because they're using butter in like the worst types of food combinations, right? Like a cheesecake, as an example. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I think, I think this is, there is some nuance to this. I think that fat in itself is inherently not bad for us. You know, and, and again, it depends on the fats. I think, you know, I think natural fats, saturated fats, you know, plant fats, you know, when you start highly processing them, you know, i.e. the seed oils, carbohydrates, I don't think are necessarily bad in itself. You know, when you start highly processing in them and make the energy hyper available, you know, we, when we powder our food is what we do when we process foods. When we turn our foods into powders, the surface area is so incredible, incredibly increased that we can absorb that super fast. And it changes the normal absorptive pattern. We normally have a very slow methodical uh, absorption pattern through our guts that, um, you know, is designed to occur in a certain stepwise fashion. We have these incretin hormones that are positioned in different places. But if we have this super highly, digest, highly absorbable food, we bypass all that stuff and we hack those types of things. So, but the point I'm saying is fat or carbohydrates or to some degree, protein is pretty hard to do, but protein, uh, any of those eating, eaten to excess and excess is a tautological term. As soon as you say the word excess, it means you've done something wrong. So you can't define mm -hmm. that. It's just when bad things have happened, you've eaten too much. You can't define what that number is until after the fact. So, I mean, you can eat too much fat. You could eat too much animal fat. I guarantee it. And I've seen it happen. You know, I can get fat eating nothing but steaks. Now it takes a lot and I've got to try my I got to try my best to do that. <laughs> I have to force my feed myself, but I can do it. If I, if I go and eat six or seven pounds of meat every day, I will get fat. Um, I don't want to do that. I, you know, it's hard for me to do. It's not, it's not enjoyable for me to do that, but you can't overeat. Like and the problem I see with animal fats, particularly when it comes to like dairy and some people don't tolerate dairy at all, but it's very easy to concentrate fat in the form of dairy, heavy cream, heavy cream. You, you pour a little stevie in there, you mix it up, mm -hmm. you blend it up, throw an egg or two, and you've got a well, maybe not the egg, but you can, you, you can make a cheesecake or you make these fat bombs. We see the keto fat bombs or, you know, some kind of concentrated fat with, with some fake sugar and they, people gorge on that. Down, yeah. Yes. You're going to get fat doing that. Yes. It's in that context. It's bad in the context of natural whole foods where satiety is allowed to progress naturally. I, I think it's hard to have a problem with that. Mm. I, I got one more for you. And this is kind of a, a more of a personal one aside from uh, meet our and Actually, before we get into that, just quickly, I know you plugged the, uh, the fund that you're trying to uh, raise. I want to make sure people, uh, like that doesn't get missed because through MeetRx, you are raising funds to, to heighten the research that you're doing on this, provide better clinical trials, R&D. Can you just talk quickly about that? Uh, I want to make sure you... Yeah, I mean, one, again, one of the criticisms has been, you know, where are the studies, where are the studies? And, you know, for some people, they don't care. They, they just like, hey, I feel great and I'm good to go. But, the, you know, to get this sort of more widely accepted, to get physicians more willing to prescribe it for their patients, I think, you know, a lot of people out there are suffering needlessly where a simple dietary shift could, could make a difference. I think things like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, autoimmune and inflammatory diseases are just perfect for this. Um, this is probably where it has a, the, the best efficacy relative to anything else. Um, you know, you have to, I think you have to do some clinical trials on that. And so we're raising money. We've got somewhere around a quarter of a million dollars raised so far. And we're still, we, we, we probably need quite honestly to get close to a million dollars before we can do the level of research that we're going to need to do to have it be a high quality study uh, that people will say that, you know, this is something we can hang our hats on. And so, you know, we're fundraising, we're, we're looking from, you know, anywhere from, a GoFundMe campaign to some private donors, you know, we're, we're looking for 
you know, we're, we're looking for uh, venture capital stuff for what we're doing with MenorX. That's going to be part of that. So mm-hmm. that's all, you know, what we're, what we're got coming up over the next, you know, at, at least in the short term, you know, future. Gotcha. And then last, last five minutes here, personal question, but how, how was it like being on Jerry? I think you're probably the first guest I have who's also been on, on the Joe Rogan uh, podcast, but just curious, like how that, yeah, I mean, you guys know I, each you other? Know, you know, uh, well, I mean, I, I speak to Joe, you know, not that in for yeah, every couple months, you know, I chat back and forth on, on social media and he sends me something or I'll send him something. But um, when I was asked to be on Joe's show, I didn't, I really didn't know much about him. I really, I mean, I kind of vaguely I knew he was on fear factor a little bit of his stuff, the UFC, UFC and he had a podcast, but I, I didn't know the impact that, that the podcast had. I wasn't, you know, I didn't realize it was one of the top podcasts in the world and didn't really know much even about podcasts. And so I said, yeah, sure. I'll come it on. Probably helped you, know, you though, man, in the conversation, you were like being oblivious to that was probably a good Yeah, it probably did. I mean, you know, I mean, cause I was, you know, and he, you know, um, and I lived, you know, not far from where his podcast studio was. It was like a 45 minute drive. So I zipped up there, just kind of drove up there, hopped out of the truck. He was in the middle of doing a podcast with a guy named Steve Ranella, who's a meat eater yeah. on TV. He's got a show. And yeah. I met him and I, I didn't know who he was either. And I said, hey, man, how's it going? Cool. So I sat in there, we had a nice chat and I, you know, I wasn't like planning on doing a doctoral dissertation defense or anything. I didn't bring like a lab bag. And I was like, he's like, Hey man, what's going on? He was a really cool, nice guy. And we just chatted and, you know, I just kind of told him, told him what was going on. And, uh, you know, that was that. And I didn't, you know, didn't, you know, think that it was going to be what it was. And it ended up being something that, you know, obviously a lot of people get exposed to that millions and millions of people have seen that show now. Yeah. Um, and then I got a lot of hatred from vegans because they put me on the radar for, for sort of these vegans that just think eating animals is awful. And any human that does that, including their parents should burn in hell. And I mean, I, and I'm, I'm being unfair trying to characterize them all that way, but there are many of them out there, particularly ones that are online that constantly are trying to proselytize and convert people. And, you know, and, and, you know, I, I'm more of, Hey man, just eat whatever you want, whatever makes it work, whatever works. You don't, don't sort of, Bash other people for bash that. other people. Now I, I, ref, I sort of reflexively sort of push back on the vegans because this is the only group that's out there saying, <laughs> Hey, you guys are evil murderer, rapist. How dare you eat meat? You know, you're killing grandma, you're killing the planet. Um, you disgusting evil person. You deserve to, you hope your soul roasts in hell. This is the types I wish your parents die. I wish your children die. This is the stuff I get from these guys. And, you know, I don't ever say that to anybody. I think it's just, yeah. it's just a waste of energy to do that. But, sure. you know, so you kind of like say, hey, look, you guys, don't, you guys don't have it all right. There's a lot of problems in some of the things you're out there putting. And they tend to misrepresent data. They, they tend to distort data. They tend to, tend to selectively pick, pick some of the facts. And you can do that either way, any side. What I say is, you know, you can find, if you want to support whatever bias you have, you can look in the research. You can find research that supports whatever you want to say. That's why flat earthers exist, right? Like, well, sure, sure. But I mean, what I say is, if you want the truth, look in the mirror. You know, when it comes to health and diet, just look in the mirror. I mean, what is working for you? You know, you can look in the research. You know, reading a research paper is not going to make you healthy. You know, you look in the mirror and see what's working. And then that's how I kind of sort of pattern my... Uh, you know, my belief system, I suppose. That's awesome, man. Hey, well, listen, I, I definitely appreciate having you on. Uh, there's this obviously the, the ethical, uh, the, this, this, the environmental impact, all the stuff that I'm sure you, you get all the time that we can talk about. I'm going to leave that for, for a different podcast sure. when, once, once you get to the million mark with MeetRx. Uh, but <laughs> I appreciate you doing this, man, and, and keep fighting the good fight. We're behind you, buddy. George, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate it. Hope your audience enjoys it. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.